Our philosophy of ministry and uh, placing it in context with our mission statement, which you find on the cover of your bulletin every week and in a number of other places, uh, we, we have said that the mission of our church, ultimately in the bottom line, is to be leading others to a life-transforming encounter with Jesus Christ. In other words, the mission of the church is evangelism and mission, the preaching and the sharing of the gospel with those who need to know Christ. And we said to do this, we need to be a people, a community who are experiencing the power of the Gospel ourselves and in our our own lives. And that's why it starts with saying we need to be a community who is liberated by grace and who are living lives fully committed to Christ. Because it is through those kind of lives that we share the Gospel most effectively. We need to be liberated. We need to be committed. We need to be experiencing the Gospel that we preach to others. That we share with others. But how are we going to be this kind of a community? How are we going to be a community that is alive to God in the liberty of the grace that is ours in Christ and living our lives fully committed to Christ which seems to be a daily struggle and fight? And part of the answer is, is our philosophy of ministry is the, the tracks that we run on as a, as a people, as a community, as a family that help us to be those people. To experience the freshness of the Gospel and its power in our own lives. To experience the call of Christ and to keep us fully committed in forgetting what is behind and pressing on toward what is ahead. To worship we say then, and we want to be a community, and we, what we do in providing what we do in the life of the church. If you look at our, our schedule from Sunday to, to Saturday every week, and everything that, that we do in the life of the church then is to lead us to worship, serve, connect, and grow. Because we believe that those are the tracks that the Bible gives us to run on to, to be this community. It was a long time ago, a number of years ago, that we took a hard look at the church's calendar and schedule and tried to to trim off all of those things that we do that simply keep us busy as a church. I think there are a lot of times in, in church life that there are things that we do that keep us busy, often keep us even entertained, things we do to to entertain the faithful that take a lot of our time and our energy in the church. We think very deliberately as we make a vision statement in this philosophy of ministry to help, in a sense, trim off the stuff that keeps us distracted and entertained so that we could be about the business of ultimately fulfilling our mission. This morning we're in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 4-11, to as we think about in the last three weeks, if you've missed them, they're online, you can go and hear and catch up. We've been talking about worship, serve, connect, and today we are talking about growing. 2 Peter chapter 1, hear then the Word of God. Actually starting in verse 3-11. through His, that is, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and His excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them they may become, we may become, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of your sinful desire. 
That's all one sentence, by the way. That is just one compound, so that, by, through, just building on itself. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with that crowning of all virtues, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's become blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, you will be richly provided for in an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. That it is full of life and power. Because you don't speak your words without living in the lives of your people. Opening our hearts, opening our minds, enabling, encouraging, calling, strengthening. Oh, lead us to a greater passion and commitment to pursuing life and growth in our relationship with You and the Lord Jesus. Speak to us this morning and recapture our hearts and our imaginations that they would be full of this calling that You have placed on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me ask you, what is your goal in life? What is your goal in life? I mean, not, not, I mean, there may be a bunch of them. You may be thinking this, that, and the other thing. But I mean, you know, boil it all down. Like, what is, your, what is the one overarching, driving goal that above everything else, and in a sense, and that, that then is the foundation of and serves everything else? What is your goal in life? And do you have one? The Bible gives us a number, I think, to choose from or different ways in which to say it, but... It's something that we ought to be very chiefly, very consciously aware of. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm after. Around, under, and beside all this other stuff that I do, my goal. Our documents as a denomination, as a, as a stream that we swim in of the Reformed faith, but our, our denomination in particular, the first question in the shorter catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief goal of men and women who were created by God and for Him? And so in some ways, that is a question you ask myself. What is my chief goal? And the answer that our documents give us that we believe is very biblical is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To bring Him glory by and through and at the same time as we enjoy Him in the salvation that is ours in Christ but then, how? Because 
in glorifying God, it's not first about anything we do. Many times we will think about how am I going to glorify Him and then enjoy Him. And we think first that it's about something that we are going to do. In the way, whether we think about our, our work or our service or so many other ways that we think to glorify God. And I do think that that is not a field. I think that there is just one chief thing first. One chief goal that underrides it all. Because before we do anything for God, and I think it is so central to understanding our calling, before we do one thing for God, it is about who we are. It is about who we are. It's about a people who have been made alive in Christ and are being made more and more like Christ. And that the goal of our lives in that end, the chief end, should be to be like Christ. And we say, well, we'll look at it, Romans 8.29, as it, as it lays out that great chain of passages, that great chain in that passage about those He foreknew, He predestined, those He predestined, He calls, those He calls, He justifies, those He justifies, He glorifies. And in that context, He says, also those He foreknew, He predestined in that calling and justifying and glorifying was that they would be predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what He's after in His people. Creating a people for Himself that are like Christ. Who would be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters who are like Him. This is God's chief end for you, so to speak. To make you like Christ. Any other goal is subordinate to this. Any other goal is secondary to this. Because we achieve every other goal better if we achieve this one first. Because you might say, well, my first goal is to worship Him, the One who has made me. And I would suggest to you, while that's true, I would suggest to you that you will worship Him better, more rightly, more purely, the more you are like Jesus. The more you are like Jesus in the way you worship, I believe that you will fulfill that calling better. Whether it's your calling at work, your calling in your marriage to be a husband, to be a wife, is, is one of the callings on my life, but I believe that we will fulfill that calling better the more we are like Jesus in the way that we think about and talk to our spouses and act toward them. Every other goal is subordinate. So one way or another, I believe the new, every single book in the New Testament says this. One way or another, every book in the New Testament is telling us to be like Jesus and to pursue that likeness. So many different ways. I don't want to spend our morning just putting those out before us, but in so many places it is telling us this, to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to be like Jesus, to imitate Jesus. That it's something that we grow into. It's something we've been born into, but it's something we grow up in. That when we are born again, that we are born again like infants in our worship. And we grow into a fullness. We're born again in so many areas of our life, wherever it is, that we are growing up into maturity, into a Christ-like character in every aspect of life. That He does give us a new birth and creates us in Christ Jesus to do good works. But we must grow. One of the many places that Peter says this, Peter says it over, over again through his two epistles if you read it. In his first epistle he says, Be holy because I am holy. He quotes God telling us to pursue that likeness to Him. Be holy because He is. Be like Christ. Be like 
our God and He tells us to make every effort, right? In verse 5, to make every effort in this text before us this morning. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge. And in other words, to grow. To grow that your faith is this foundation and you ought to build on it and build on it. To grow into this beautiful character that is described in the text. Paul says it in Ephesians 4, verses 14 and 15. He says, so that we'll no longer be children. Because we are born again as, in a sense, spiritual children. And it's fine if you are a young Christian to be immature. You know, we expect that from, from youth and from children. But as we walk with Christ over many years, we, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind and doctrine. We are to grow up. We're to grow up in every way, in every aspect of our life and character. The way we think, the way we talk, the way we feel, the way we treat people, the way we are married, the way we are workers, the way we are worshipers, the way we are every. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. He lays it out before us. Colossians 1, 28. It says this. Paul, speaking of his ministry, he says, what do I do? I'm warning everyone. I'm teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why, Paul? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. It is the end goal of every ministry that we offer in this church. And if what we offer wasn't moving toward that mission, that we would be liberated by grace, living lives fully committed to Christ, and leading others into that mission and into that relationship, then we are trimming it off because we warn and teach everyone that we may present them mature in Christ. Not to keep God's people busy and distracted and entertained, but to be pursuing and to pressing into the high calling. Hebrews 6.1, it says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. 1 Peter 2.2, he says it again in his first letter, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That you may grow up into your salvation. We've been called, even predestined, to pursue this goal. Every, every apostle in almost every letter calls God's people to grow up into the likeness of Christ and to pursue it, to be diligent in pursuing it. Now in verse 3, when we enter into, as we look at Peter's development of it here, we have lists like this in many different letters. The same kind of list of, 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 a, of defining and outlining and painting a picture of a character. You know, of, of something that we are to be. It is nothing other than the image of God in Christ. And so he gives us this image, but as he enters in, it's so important to start at the beginning, he says, His divine power, verse 3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and His excellence. And he says for this pursuit of godliness that He has called us into, predestined us into, this pursuit of godliness, he says he's given us divine power. His divine power has granted you everything that you need. In other words, the one who calls you has empowered you to have and to pursue everything that he's called you to pursue. In a sense, he is the one who does it. For the pursuit of it, he says he gives us divine power. That He has granted it to us. That is, He has freely given to us everything that pertains to this life and to this godliness that He 
that He's calling us to. He enables it. He empowers it. God is the power of godliness. Christ is the power of a Christ-likeness. And He gives Himself to us. Right? And so we note the power. The power is divine. And what this means is that Christian life and growth is not a self-help manual. Right? He says it is His divine power that is granted or freely given it to us. Right? So we know when we want to pursue this thing, we don't look to ourselves and say, alright, now I'm going to do all this for God. Alright, so now tomorrow I'm going to start being this person for God. Alright, or we start looking to ourselves and think by our bootstraps or any strength of our own, we could manage to pull off to become any of these things. He says it's in His divine power that is freely given to us what we need. Because He has not only given us the call, He has given us Jesus Himself. That we are to abide in Him. And that's what He says as He presses forward, doesn't He? But let's, let's touch this first. He's given us His power. He says it all over the New Testament. We'll go to Paul again in Ephesians 3.20. It says this, now unto Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He is able to do this, this picture of the new man in Christ that is painted for us in 2 Peter 1. He is able to do far more than even this. And we're able to ask or think how? According to a power that is at work within us. The power is not us. <laughs> But there is a power at work within us. We have been filled with His Spirit. We have been united to Christ. And He has begun a good work in you that He has promised to carry on to completion. And so we look to Him. We pray for it and we seek it and we rely on Him and we ask for it and we are with Christ. And as we abide in Him, we bear much fruit. And all that we need for this life has been given freely to us in the Son. 2 Corinthians 9.8, Paul writes and he says this, God is able to make all grace... Look at the four alls in this. There's a sermon in the four alls right here. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you would abound in every good work. God is able. He's able to do this in us and through us. He gives us His power. He gives it as a gift. It's granted, He says, granted to us all. He's given freely to us all. A people who don't deserve it. A people who haven't earned it. A people who can't earn it. A people who daily fall short of it. And yet He freely gives it to us. Day by day. It's a gift. And it's a fullness, just as Paul was saying, he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In a sense, there's no excuse. Everything that we need has been made available to us in the Son. If we would abide in Him, that He would abide in us, and that we would bear that fruit. All this comes, as we say, from Christ, and that's what he says. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him, that's through the knowledge of Christ who called us by His own glory and excellence. The glory and excellence of this character that He calls us to is in Christ. And we have access to it, He says. It all comes to us. Everything we need, given to us in the person of Christ. God doesn't just give us a power or a, a character or a thing out here. He gives to us a person. He gives us the person of Christ. 
and says, know Him, love Him, walk with Him, abide in Him, trust in Him, hope in Him, rely on Him moment by moment, depend on Him. He is, at one point Jesus says, I am your life. Right? That we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Everything we need for a Christ-like life has been given to us in the Son. And so it comes to us in the form of these promises, right? He's called us by His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us these precious and very great promises. The Gospel. They're precious because they're very great. The greater something is, the more dear you hold it to yourself. The more precious it is. And He has given us very great and precious promises that center around Jesus. And that if we have Christ, all that is His is is ours. That we become co-heirs with Christ, inheriting His kingdom, inheriting His riches and His blessing, inheriting His life and His character, inheriting His Father, so to speak, from Him. So that when we are united to Him, we inherit everything. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so we have these great promises that are precious to us as Christ is precious to us. And there is a connection between the promises that are ours in Christ in this, this life that we're called to grow up into and to pursue. We see it in many places. A couple, 1 John 3.3 3. In John 3, chapter 3, the verses right before this, He says, Behold, what manner of love is the Father given to us that we should be called the children of God. And yet, that is what we are. And then He says, everyone who has this hope, these promises, great and precious, that we are the children of God in the love of Christ. Everyone who has this hope in himself does what Peter is telling us to do. He purifies himself even as he is pure. And he, and he puts off that corruption of the world and he grows in the likeness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says the same thing. Since we have these precious promises, beloved, He's promised us everything. The world. The kingdom in Christ. So let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness completion, growing up in it, perfecting it, pursuing it in the fear of God. Because we have these promises, we have this calling. And he says, in this rambling sentence building, given us everything. He's given it to us in this calling of the Son and His glory and His excellence through the precious and great promises that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of these sinful desires. Right? That's what Paul just said in 2 Corinthians 7.1. But he says we become partakers of the divine nature. Some people go to this text and come away with some really funny ideas. <laughs> right? What does he mean to become partakers of the divine nature? And you get cults built around taking things like this, in my opinion, way out of context and saying that you too will be gods. You know, in Mormonism. Um, in, in, in the things that they develop. And he's not saying that because the New Testament, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. The Scripture is very clear. We do not become gods. We do not become God in, 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 in any essential sense. He doesn't give us His 
essence, His divinity, what we would call as theologians through the ages, have no problem, His communicable and His incommunicable attributes. And there are things about God that He cannot communicate to us. He cannot give to us. His eternity. We're creatures. We'll always be finite. His divinity. We are made, not that unmade eternal one. Right? There are things He cannot communicate to us. He cannot give to us. But there is much He has given to us. What we mean when we say we were made in the image of God, in true righteousness, in holiness, in wisdom, in love. These are the attributes of God too, but they're communicable. We have a share of His wisdom, of His love, of, of who He is. And that's what He is saying here. He's talking about the image of God. And we know this because the, the New Testament tells us that this is what it means to be renewed and delivered from the corruption of the world that he's talking about here, and into sharing, participating in, this is the word koinonia, having a share in, a, a fellowship with the life of God in His attributes. Look at Ephesians 4, 22-24, where Paul says, put off your old self. This is what we did. You were taught about Christ this way. To put off your old self, it belongs to the former manner of life that is corrupt through its deceitful desires. That is exactly what he says here in verse 4. You've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Right? And so the other half of this, Paul gives to us in the right language. Well, they're both right language, but in clearer, he says to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on a new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is what we partake in. This is his divine nature that has been communicated and shared with us. That we were made in His own image, in true righteousness, in holiness. It's what we lost in the fall. It's what's renewed by grace in Christ. And we escape the corruption of the world by being renewed in the image of God, in righteousness and holiness. This is what we're about. Whatever else we do, we do as we are renewed in His image. And we are to grow up into it. We are to mature. We talk about sanctification as progressive. That we, that we grow. That we, in, in the putting off of the old, in the assimilating of the new, becoming more and more like Him. We were born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. The inner person is being renewed and alive to God. We have a new identity. We are the elect of God. The children of God. Holy and dearly loved. He has begun a good work in us. And all of this is the place where our pursuit of holiness begins. It's who we are. It's who He has made us to be. By uniting us to Christ. And letting the life of Christ flow into us. That's where John 15 is so beautiful. In the vine and the branches. For He is the vine. You are the branch. And if you abide in Him, the life of the vine empowers and enables a new life. You participate in. You share in the divine nature itself that is righteous. He renews us in righteousness and holiness. And He says, and if you abide in Me, you will bear much fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness. You will bear the fruit as you abide in Christ. And so we press forward. Though. We press forward. We grow up. We advance. We press in. 
But we need to understand that this process, as Michael Green says, commenting on this, he says, they, we, must become in practice what we already are in God's sight. That what I'm calling you to is not to become something other than you, in a sense, already are. That you have a new identity in Christ. We fight from a place of victory. Right? We, we, put on a, we, we, we put on the attributes of the new man that He has made us in Christ. That we stand already forgiven in Him, loved in Him, saved eternally in Him. We have everything already handed to us. We need to have it straight in our minds that we're not pressing in so God will be pleased with us or accept us or save us or something like that. We press in because He already has to become who He has already made us to be. And so He reminds them of the new birth of the divine power, of the promises, of the One who has called them, of their sharing and participation in the very nature of God Himself in the image. And He lays that as the foundation of this calling. And says, now, because all of this is true, make every effort. Some have called this list going down here a rosary of graces. Some have called it a ladder of faith. You know, there's so many different ways that you could talk about it, but he, but he does get this idea of building, like the Bible often does, of lo- building things on top of each other, something rising and growing up into something being built. There, there's a sermon on every one of these we can do next week on faith, the next week on virtue, on knowledge, on self-control, on steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. But I'm not going to do that. We're going to press into some other things. And let me just run through and touch on these as we think about growing in this kind of grace. When we come to faith, it is not the end of a journey. And that's what keeps being laid out in front of us. It's, it's, a, it's the beginning of a journey. And you need to have in your, your head, you know, as the writer of Hebrews says it, we run the race that has been laid out before us. Are you running a race? Are you, per, are you predestined to be something and now you're pursuing it? You've been born again and now you're growing up to maturity in Christ. On the basis of the new birth and the power and the promises and the partaking, he says, verse 5, for this reason, for all of these great and precious truths and promises and all that God has done and provided because of all that He has made you to be in Christ, Make every effort to supplement your faith, to build on your faith, and add to it all of these other areas of life and health and growth. In other words, God's grace and power, and sometimes I think in Reformed circles, we think that that effort and diligence and discipline sometimes are at odds with God's grace. And we say God has done it all. And so we don't have to do anything. And there's a level at which there's truth in that, and particularly as He has caused you to be born again and raised you from the dead spiritually. But as we read about the Christian life to the one who has been made alive, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, when we look at God's grace and His power and all that He's given us, it does not make our efforts unnecessary. He says on the basis of all that God has done, Make every effort. Work hard. Try your very best. 
Run the race with endurance. Get, get about God's business in your life. He's begun a good work and you don't sit back and wait for it to happen. Make every effort to see that work take place. Press into the process. Press into what God is doing. Oh, He enables us and He, he makes our efforts effective. He establishes the work of our hands, but He calls our hands to the work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, one verse that comes to me over and over again in my Christian life. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, just another way of saying, make every effort to add to your faith and to build it up, to grow up into Christ. Make every effort, work it out. And he says, why? Because God is at work in you. He's working in you His will and His good pleasure. But God's working in you, His will and good pleasure, doesn't leave us idle. What does it look like when God is working His will and His good pleasure in me? It looks like me pursuing hard after Christ. That's what it looks like. Right? And so they're not one or the other. It's, it's both and. Because God is at work and because He has begun something, make every effort every effort to see this maturity taking place in your soul. Virtue, which is a quality of your whole life. Add to your faith that trust in Christ that saves. A virtue which is a quality that is in a sense an umbrella over your whole life. It's a very practical form of goodness. Virtue is a, is a goodness about everything we do. I believe it has to do with the Right here, the virtue you could put in to add to your faith the fruits of the Spirit. Because that virtue is that, that goodness, practical goodness that in, infuses the life. That love, joy, peace, but that patience, that kindness, that goodness, that gentleness, that faithfulness, that self-control that infuses the life. That is the life of virtue. And add to your faith a very practical life of godliness. Knowledge, as we press into the life of Christ, there's an intellectual component to it. We need to know His Word and we need to know His ways. And we often know His ways by knowing His words and studying things like the Kings and the Chronicles where God worked in the lives of His people through history. How do we know His ways and His thinking if we don't know His Word and how He's worked through history and we see Him and we taste Him in, in, in all of the Scripture. It's why we offer what we offer. Because there's this component, a renewing of the mind, a steeping ourselves in the ways of God. Self-control, which is a, is a life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I think other ways to think of self-control is to, to walk in the Spirit. That is to be full of the Spirit and so influenced by the Spirit that, that my passions and my lusts and my desires and all those other things come, come under control. That we walk by the Spirit. That we live by the Spirit. That we are full of the Spirit. And so we are under His influence rather than being controlled by our passions and our lusts, whether it's for food, for drink, or for anything else. Rather than being controlled by our passions, we are controlled by Christ. And we walk with Him in the power of His Spirit. Endurance. You cannot walk for Christ, with Christ for long and not understand the need for endurance. The unwavering faith and trust and hope 
despite our trials, despite our suffering, despite our difficulties, despite our depression, despite our temptations, despite whatever, that endurance that trusts and loves and believes no matter what we encounter and go through in this life, understanding it is the grace of, it takes great power, it takes divine power to endure in those things in the face of all that we face in this life. It is the fruit of His Spirit as much as anything else. This godliness, a life of worship and obedience, this love, this brotherly affection to God's people and to the church, to the brethren. To love His church, and we've talked about that. But also this crowning love, there's this brotherly love, phileo to God's people, and then He crowns it with agape. Right? And, and, and the Scripture does this again and again. The first fruit of the Spirit is agape. Right, I can have everything, but if I have not agape, I am nothing. Right, in agape, this love that reigns over the life of a believer. First, the love of God for us that reigns and sets us free to pursue this life. And then that love that reigns in us because we walk with Him, flowing life as a branch of vines in the vine and loving others with that unselfish, unconditional graciousness to give what is not deserved. It says in verse 8, these qualities are to be yours. And they're to be increasing. You are to be growing. Right? That is, that is the goal. That is the call. Till the day you die. I'm 51 years old. I've been following Jesus since I was 18. So you do the math. What is that? 33 uh, years. I have grown. I have grown. If you knew me at 18 and you know me now, I have grown. But there's nothing I know more intensely at this moment in my life is that I want to grow and be more like Jesus Christ. And that I am aware of how far I fall short. I am aware of all the ways that I'm still not mature and like Christ the ways I want to be. And this is something that ought to be the overriding, whatever your job is, whatever you're doing, whether you're home with your kids or working it out there, or whatever, you're, whatever it is that fills your life underneath and all around that should be this pursuit. This overarching pursuit of godliness. To be like Jesus. To follow Him and obey Him and to be like Him. I was predestined and born again to be that man. These, he says, you are to have these qualities and you are to be growing in them, increasing in them, and they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. To be an effective member of the body, to be an effective fruit-bearing person, I need the life of Jesus being shaped in me and in my life. And, and this pursuit, this growth into maturity makes us more and more effective and useful to the Father in His kingdom building. For whoever lacks these qualities, if we lack them or if we're not growing in them and we've grown complacent in them. And let me just say this about spiritual growth. I was talking about it this week, some brothers, as we were thinking about these things. And, you know, and I said, at somewhere early in my Christian life, I was given a picture that has proven so true to me and it's helped me so much in remembering what my spiritual growth is like. They said, you know, spiritual growth is not like you're driving a car and you decide and you see a scenic overlook and you pull off into the scenic overlook and you just get distracted for a while. But you can just pop right back on right where you left off and keep going. 
You say, spiritual growth isn't like that. It's not my experience. My spiritual growth is that I'm swimming upstream. I'm swimming upstream, and when I stop swimming, you start to lose ground. And I know that if I've lost ground for any amount of time, I know I don't just pop back in where I left off. There's all kinds of spiritual work I've got to do, in a sense, to get my heart right, and to get my passions back, and to get you know, some of those things that I've been, ways I've, you know what I'm talking about. It takes, you don't just get to pop back on. We lose ground. These things are to be increasing and growing in maturity. We press ahead to practice and exhibit them, he says, makes us effective. But also, he says, if we lack these qualities, we're so nearsighted and blind, we have forgotten that we've been cleansed from our sins. We've forgotten who we are in Christ. That we are dead to sin and alive unto God and Jesus. We have forgotten who we were made for. We have forgotten what we're about. We've forgotten our identity in Christ. Therefore, brothers, all the more diligent, be all the more diligent. The language of the Scripture always comes to us about spiritual things, diligence, discipline, self-control, every effort. Work it out with fear, with trembling. Pursue it. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. If you practice these qualities, you will not fall. For in this way you will be richly provided for an entrance into the kingdom. And what he is saying is that when we practice and exhibit these qualities, they're not only an encouragement to our faith as we pursue this likeness, they not only encourage our faith as we see our hearts and our lives growing like Jesus, but it also actually helps to protect and preserve us. That that growing character itself is perseverance, is part of our perseverance. In other words, walking in this way, pursuing these things, being all the more diligent to press into these things is walking in the narrow way. It is the narrow road to follow Him, to obey Him, to know Him and to love Him and to be like Him is the narrow way. Every opportunity we offer in the life of the church is to help you worship and serve and connect and grow. Alexander McLaren said, most Christians are not half ambitious enough. The average Christian man or woman does not think nearly as loftily as he ought to think of what it is the power of the Gospel wants to make him. Nor puts forth the efforts believing that those efforts will succeed. That he will establish the work of our hands. To add to His faith all these graces. To bring us to maturity. To grow us in Christ's likeness. We'll just end with the words of Paul's and let them be yours. And I think this is what, till the day you die, till the day you, that you can't you know, think these words anymore, Paul says in Philippians 3, a man who was very mature, a man who had pressed long and hard in the pursuit of Christ says, I have not yet taken hold. I am not yet been made all that I need to be, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. I press on. That should be, in a sense, our mantra. (laughs) That should be the goal of our lives. That day by day, why do I get up in the morning? 
Why do I get up early in the morning? Why do I give this time or that time? Why do I go there? Because I'm pressing towards something. And this helps me grow, keeps me grounded, and makes me like Jesus. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have placed this high calling on us. We pray, we ask, we plead that you would awaken us to the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. That you would awaken us to the identity that has been given to us. The great and the precious promises that are ours as co-heirs with Jesus. The good work that you have begun. The life that you have bestowed. The grace that you are able to make abound always in everything. Oh, wake us up that we might press on toward the high calling. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.